Good morning. Good to see you all. I start with a poem by Massachusetts poet Pat Schneider. It's called, There Is Another Way. There is another way to enter an apple, a worm's way. The small, round door closes behind her. The world and all its necessities ripen around her like a room. In the sweet marrow of a bone, the maggot does not remember the wing spread of the mother, the green shine of her body, nor even the last breath of the dying deer. I too have forgotten how I came here, breathing this sweet wind, drinking rain, encased by the limits of what I can imagine and by a husk of stars. One of the thrilling parts of my sabbatical was joining a community of artists, collage and mixed media artists, professionals all. We worked in a Tacoma Park studio every Thursday, every Tuesday for three hours, and we'll resume that work when we get back together again in September as we continue to explore the amazing alchemy by which experience becomes art and how the raw material of our inner lives materializes into tangible matter outside of us. Always seems like a miracle. There is another way, says the poet, to enter an apple. And the poet goes on to describe a little maggot happy within the sweet marrow, within a bone, within the carcass of a deer, but the maggot remembers neither the deer nor its own mother with her shiny green leaves. All the maggot knows it's very, is its very small universe. And in ways very like, and also very different from the maggot and the worm, we are encased physically within a husk of stars. We are bound by the limits of what we can imagine, a small world, an infinite world, depending on how you choose to use your imagination. It took quite a while for me to get my bearings careening in my work between technique and whimsy to find my way into the apple to those images that for me represented beauty as well as those born of sorrow and regret and everything else that makes a person real. It was probably the greatest gift of my sabbatical, this pushing out of my limits of my imagination to see where it would take me. I don't often get that chance. I don't know about you all. And so often during the group critique, which were just a fabulous method of critique, best I've ever experienced, I would look at my piece and I would have no idea where it came from. But then I would stand back and look at it some more, and I knew exactly where it came from. It came from my own story. The poet describes a person, possibly herself, or you, or me. I, too, have forgotten how I came here, breathing this sweet wind, drinking rain, encased by the limits of what I can imagine and by a husk of stars. Some suggest that we live in a deadened, sleepwalking culture, inured to violence, 
with nameless, faceless dangers all around us, prolonged, morally ambiguous wars, deep ecological issues and disasters, inexplicably malevolent economics, and mean and predatory and bizarre politics, immune to reason everywhere. In this world, Time Magazine reported recently, zombies are sort of tr familiar territory. And with each season, as the TV shows come and go, even some of my favorites, zombies remain. There's a nagging fear, a dawning awareness, that too often we put we but pass for living and only appear alive, the poet Max Kutz reminds us, is the little deaths before the final time we fear, the blasé shrug that quietly replaces excited curiosity, the cynical sneer that takes the place of innocence, the soft, sweet odor of success that overcomes the sense of sympathy, the self-betrayals that rob us of our will to trust, the ridicule of vision, the barren blindness to what was once our sense of beauty. These are the deaths that come so quietly, we do not know when it was we died. Sometimes I have found that when I get into a comfortable, predictable pattern or routine, for instance, say like going home to the off, going home at night, coming back, and the, going to the office, to the meeting, to another meeting, and another meeting, to home, and then back again to a meeting that night, I forget to see. I become zombie-like. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. And so on my sabbatical, I acquired two spiritual practices. One was the making of art, and the other was walking my dog, Akiva. When I walked my dog, I walked her just to notice or to hear one new thing, however small. And here's what happened. I started to see and hear new things everywhere. The leaves trembling, the birds flying from branch to branch. Bird calls. Can you imagine how many bird calls there are at four in the morning? All the different shades of green of the trees and the wind were rustling. All small and simple sights and sounds but they came, but they began to just stand out more. I would spend whole days hand-dyeing and then cutting into pieces, little bitty pieces of paper for the sole purpose of moving them around and watching how the colors interacted with one another. The poet E.E. E. Cummings wrote, Now the ears of my ears awake, and now the eyes of my eyes are opened. And though I don't want to overstate this too much, it did feel a bit like that as far as what was happening to me. And Mary Oliver writes, so come to the pond or the river of your imagination or the harbor of your longing. The role of the artist as I see it is similar to the role of an ethical culturist. To transcend the conventional wisdom, transcend the status quo, transcend the orthodoxy that is all around us. When Dr. Felix Adler, Ethical Culture's founding member, set about to create a new religious movement, not to discard religion, not to abandon it, but to transform it, 
He wanted to transcend some of the theological and ritual limits he found in Judaism, his religion of origin, and also the dehumanization he saw in the broader culture, born of greed, skepticism, materialism, and fundamentalism. So as to discover what we need to truly bring us outside of our own individual lives and connect us in a profound way to other people, to the larger universe, and to what is most sacred in life. What will it take, he and his colleagues wondered, to make sacred the life of every woman, man, and child? What does it take to realize worth and dignity? What must we have or do to make the lives of others and our own life flourish? Social psychologist and humanist philosopher Eric Fromm, who was one of my all-time favorite authors during the 60s, maybe some of you (laughs) had the same feeling about him, invoked a beautiful image. He said that as we mold our lives and characters, we are both the artist and the objects of our art. Our lives are like the marble to which we slowly give shape through active and creative engagement with our world, that is, by what we do. For Adler, we create the art that is our life by engaging the world beyond our own life and by gathering with others to change the world for the better, and in the very process of doing so, we are changed. Therefore, his maxim, bring out the best in others, acts so as to bring out the best in ourselves. The leader of the Bergen Ethical Society, Joe Schumann, reminds us that when people are sitting around talking about ethics, It's typically a conversation about avoiding conflicts of interest or thinking about the moral rules of behavior or exploring ethical dilemmas. And those aspects of ethics may have interested Adler, but he rarely talked about those things. Adler, notes Schumann, meant by ethics, enhancing life growing one's appreciation of the humanity of the other and building mutually fruitful relations between people that enable people to grow in their appreciation of the humanity in the other and in their conduct that emerges from that appreciation. And this, as we know, this ethical cultivating, this fashioning of a life is a project which, in truth, is never complete It goes on our whole life long. It forces us to open ourselves over and over again to the profound question, what kind of person do I really want to be? And then invites us to go forth and create ourselves in the answers we have given to that question. We have no prescribed path, no divine souls to emulate, and so we are left on our own to figure out all of this by ourselves. Grounded in free thought, we are mostly absent the rituals and hymns and practices and sacred texts and stories that assist some from more traditional religious with the shaping of their characters. Schumann says the image of the empty, he uses the images of, of, an, of an empty cup, saying it is the very emptiness of the cup that gives rise to its purpose of holding water. What's not there allows for what is there. 
and the cup that is ethical culture demands that that emptiness be filled with ethical content that lives in our hearts and minds. Our meeting house, he said, like the walls of a cup, allow us to fill it with ethical content that makes life flourish. So the task then inside these walls is to help each other remember our unconditional worth and dignity, even in those moments when we doubt it. We have plenty of opportunities to doubt it and to grow together toward the ideals that arise out of our reverence for the good. Ralph Waldo Emerson, who is an early influence on, on Adler, challenges us to live with the privilege of the immeasurable mind. I think that is such a beautiful invitation and a daunting assignment. By this, I think he was exhorting us to live joyfully, boldly, and ethically with this amazing gift, this evolutionary accident, this gift that, like, this gift that like so many privileges, we take for granted, this privilege of the immeasurable mind. I know that so often I choose to live quietly, safely, contentedly with the confines of what I already know and with those who are already within my circle, friends. And how often I enter the dark closet of the closed mind, the cramped but familiar domain of what I've come to hold as true. It's like the inside of the apple. I think of Adler, who spent his whole life wondering and inquiring and learning, letting go of old truths when new truth proved more sound, never having to face or fence the edge of what he didn't know because it might be too frightening, though I'm sure it would have been easier at times to return to the religious understandings of his youth. He was someone encased, as are all of us on earth, by a husk of stars and by, of course, his own mortality. But there were no limits to his imagination. And we rarely talk about it, but I believe that it is the cultivation of imagination that is one of the greatest values we ethical culturists hold. Imagination is at the heart of empathy, the ability to walk in someone else's shoes. Imagination is also at the heart of creativity, allowing us to expand our minds into hope and to possibility to consider alternative realities. Imagination is the seed of resistance within a society of oppression. We certainly have been seeing a lot of that lately, a lot of imagination coming to the fore. We live in a time of great confusion, of rapid change, And Emerson once said, when the half-gods go, the gods arrive. The god of nationalism, the god of materialism, the god of militarism, the god of an infinite expanding economy. But what we have can address that. The gift of a religious outlook that sees people as ends and not means that recognize the inherent worth and dignity in every person, one, one that is based on the possibility of growth in every person, is significant. It is time, it is way past time, to create something new.
To respond to these broader challenges in the culture will require imagination, individual creativity, and shared creativity to create a new vision. We are so easily encased by the limits of what we can imagine. And I'm thinking of the clip we watched last week from the video, 9500 Liberty. How many of you saw that? It was terrifying. Think about all the Andy, angry rhetoric we heard of people opposing immigration, saying America is part of God's plan. Who is responsible for 9-11? And they shouted, illegals. And the clip we saw of Glenn Beck speaking with his abhorrent, violent, threatening words about Michael Moore. Or those who said illegal immigrants ought to stay in their own countries instead of coming to ours, not bothering, not even bothering to imagine the poverty and lack of hope they came with. They're not imagining what it would take to force a person to escape their poverty at tremendous risk, to chase hope, to risk their life, and work a job that no one else will do. I love the Israeli author and leftist and atheist David Grossman, who for years has been working for peace in the Middle East, he lost his son in the war with Lebanon, and still, though Israeli to the core of his being, he continues to fight for a two-state solution. He writes these days mostly about grief, but he continues to illuminate the same things he's explored for decades. What happens to a people, or to two peoples, who can speak of nothing but freedom but have lived for decades imprisoned by their fear, defined and doomed by their fear. He believes that peace will come eventually, but he says it will require generations because everyone, everyone has been poisoned. We will need a totally new language, he said, because you see we were born to these wars, to this violence. It is engraved now in our genes. We forgot totally our human language. We have only the dictionary of hate. He talks about how his art, which is writing, has saved him, saved his soul, if you will, precisely because it requires of him the creative imagination. He wrote about the peace accord and said, quote, I can recall what we all felt in Israel for one singular moment when the airplane of Egyptian President Anwar Sadat landed in Tel Aviv 30 years ago after decades of war between the two nations. And then all of a sudden, we discovered how heavy is the load we carry all our lives, the load of enmity and fear and suspicion, the load of permanent guard duty, the heavy burden of being an enemy at all times. And what a delight it was, he said, to remove for one moment the mighty armor of suspicion, hate, and stereotype. It was a delight that was almost terrifying to stand naked, pure almost, and witness a human face emerge from the one-dimensional version with which we have observed each other over all these years. This is the great mystery, the great alchemy, 
We are not the slaves of our predicament, nor of our private anxieties, not of the official narrative, nor of fate itself. The world is not closing in on us. How fortunate we are. The world is not growing increasingly narrow, he said. Live with privilege, the gift, the miracle, the plain reality of the immeasurable mind, the lively and alive imagination. But why? Looking back on this past week alone, I can think of more instances than I'm comfortable confessing to you here. Conversations, little conflicts, so many misunderstandings, both petty and insignificant, in this community and in my own house and all the other places where I go stumbling around in which the limits of my own ethical and emotional imagination become such effective barriers, such heavily guarded frontiers, such Berlin walls that I couldn't hear or understand or learn a single thing. It's why I say I'm here. And perhaps some of you are here for this reason, to practice our religion in this way of being open. Here with you I learn and then we learn again all the time and as needed, which is about, to be honest, once a week, to lift the grid of predetermined assumptions, spiritual, intellectual, interpersonal, intimate, and religious assumptions. And here I remember, as David Grossman says, we are not the slaves of our predicament, nor of our private anxieties, not of any official narrative, nor of fate itself. The world is not closing in on us. How fortunate we are. The world is not growing increasingly narrow. I think of our own community now and how one of our challenges, as I see it, is to continue to learn how to be co-creators. Charles de Gaulle famously once said something about his country, France. He said, it is hard to govern a country that has 350 kinds of cheese. (laughs) Closer to home, I think how challenging it can be for us sometimes to come together when we hold such different points of view about, about everything. I think of how many different points of view we had to meld together in the creation of our now accessible and expanded building just a few years back, and of the imagination and courage it took for us to move forward with it. When the suggestion to expand the building first came up, we knew that it could also be solved with just a technical fix. Some said, put a ramp on the front. Others said, build another bathroom on the main floor, that'll do it. But we couldn't really do that, because by then, something bigger was calling to us, something that owns us, our mission, our mission that's on the front page of your program every Sunday. We dreamed big, imagining that there could be room here for every child and every adult, every youth and every elder, room for all of us and for others we will welcome, room for every dream and every possibility. We would open our doors wide to the world, to the street, to the cries of the poor, a place of clear seeing where injustice is imagined and a liberation sought, where every hatred, oppression, greed, and war are named and owned, and where love across our broken world becomes an urgent possibility. That's what we talked about.
But when we worked together to expand our building, our implicit guideline was always dream big. Genuine, hard, and collaborative and creative work does not deplete us. It lifts our spirits. And I also know that when our imagination atrophies at the congregational level, what happens is we sacrifice our passion and fall victim to a kind of myopia. We grow more and more nearsighted, content with more manageable little projects. The comfort that we get from a place like this, the comfort that we get from a place like this. But unaware that that very comfort can turn to entitlement, or we lose track of our mission, or we get bogged down in technical and practical issues or dramas that seduce our attention. But we're stronger than that, and our presence to one another and to our community is more crucial than that. You and Amanda and the board and I always, always have a responsibility to speak of and live towards the deepest things, to imagine and dream of what we could do and be in the world. You know, I can't prove it, but I do believe that a religious and philosophical movement grounded not in fundamental certainties, but in amazement, in limitless imagination is one well-suited to understand what's needed to create a better world. To understand what's needed to create the better world of which we dream. And if we think about this, if our known world is ever-expanding, then you may be not only able, but eager to hear what someone else is saying, to understand what they are feeling, to see what they see as if through their own eyes. And this is how we learn compassion. This is how we become sensitive to the need for justice. I believe we have something rare and precious here in the place where people meet to seek the highest that is large enough to hold those who hunger for something more in this lifetime. I believe that we have a message that speaks right to the deepest places of the human spirit and refuses to bow to the forces that diminish life. And I have a fond hope that Wes feels like a safe place to risk trying something new, to sing even if you were told in third grade music class that you should only mouth the words, to stop and reflect in the quiet moments that we offer here on Sundays, even if you've always been the life of the party. To reach out and take the hands of the people standing beside you, even if you are shy. And to go forth into your work, spiritually nourished and socially fortified, a little better prepared to make a creative response to the world.